So we really are a church that wants to be about pursuing God, preparing people, and proclaiming Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives, including our marriages. We're going to be talking about that a little bit today. But here's one of the things, right? When people get married, they make vows like this, right? For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Here's one of the problems, though, is that we're often coming into marriage expecting a lot of the better, but not so prepared for the worse, right? And, and part of the problem is sometimes we have greater expectations about marriage that are probably unrealistic. We expect that our spouse will meet all of our relational needs. They're going to be our best friend. Well, that might be true to a certain extent, but, you know, wife, your husband is never going to relate to you how your girlfriends relate to you, and husbands, your your wife is never going to relate to you how your guy friends relate to you. Um, and there's not always the same passionate pursuit, you know, in marriage as when you were dating, because life just gets in the way. It's work, it's children, it's just everyday life, and you know, the energy you had for each other just kind of gets sucked away. But let me say, folks, that's a battle worth fighting. It's worth pursuing your spouse. But I think one of the biggest problems is a theological one. Actually, it's an anthropological one. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. When you married, you married a sinner. Turn to your spouse and say, you married a sinner. <laughs> and, then, and then turn around and said, so did I. That's the truth, right? And what do sinners do? They sin. They make selfish choices. They're inconsiderate. They have habits that annoy you. They fail to see the wisdom of doing things your way. When Carrie and I got, first got married, we had this great knockdown dragout fight about a barbecue. Could she not see the virtue of briquettes? How could we desecrate this meat with gas? Really? I had permission, by the way. <laughs> and you don't always respond in kindness or graciously. You know how to push each other's buttons. You say unkind things. You do unkind things. And then we usually turn around in kind and respond the same way. And now the better just seems worse. You're wondering whether you should get out like 50% of American marriages. Those are the stats out there. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's what the popular wisdom is. But divorce is a terrible option as well. It's very painful. It tears families apart. It tears children apart, especially. And... You know, we've all, we've all suffered from it, whether it's, it's happened in our immediate family or extended family. It's tough. It's very hard. It's painful. It brings anger, bitterness. You wonder what side you should choose. There are financial implications. It's just hard. It's tough. It's not what God intended. But the good news is this, is that Jesus came to reconcile us to himself at great cost with his own blood to redeem us. 
And not only is his life an example of reconciliation, but he gives us his spirit and his grace that empowers us to extend grace to one another, forgiveness to one another, in order that we might be reconciled first to him and then also to one another especially in marriage. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be at verse 10 through 16 today. So I'll give you just a moment to get there, and then we'll read together. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 16. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man, a believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word today. Lord, indeed, um, this is some deep stuff, and we might be touching with some tender areas. But I pray that your grace would reign. Give me wisdom as I proclaim your Word. Let me be truthful but tender. And give us ears to hear what you have for us today. We commit this time to you and ask you to be glorified in the proclaiming of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we have been in the uh, letter of 1 Corinthians. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at holy sexuality, right? Our sexuality is submitted unto the Lord, that is, in the last, uh, especially in chapter 5 and 6. Paul talks about how the body is not meant for sexual immorality because it is part of Christ himself because as a believer, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sex is only to be um, exercised in the covenant of marriage. And that's not something that God blesses about. It's a good thing. And and should be practiced liberally as uh, a couple is not to withhold themselves sexually from their spouse. The only exception is in the, in the area of mutual prayer. Paul also goes on to recommend singleness. We're going to talk more about that, partly because of one's own giftedness. But he says it is better to marry than to burn. But he goes on to continue to address the married here. And the truth is divorce was quite prevalent in first century greco Roman world. They, most of them didn't believe that marriage would last a lifetime. And let me just read to you an inscription that was on a, a funeral plaque talking about this. It says, Uncommon are marriages which last so long, 
brought to an end by death, not broken apart by divorce. For it was our happy lot that it should be prolonged to the 41st year without estrangement. The point was this seemed to be more of an exception than the norm in that society. In the Greco-Roman world, there were two ways to be divorced. You could do it the legal way, go to the courthouse and get your certificate of divorce, and it's kind of a no-fault divorce process. Both men and women, that was different in the Greco-Roman world. In the Jewish world, only men could proceed with divorce uh, proceedings. But the other way is just to leave, just to get out. And after a while, it's like, okay, we're no longer married. And that was what happened with with Herod Antipas, or Herod, the guy that beheaded um, John the Baptist. As he took his half-brother's wife, who abandoned him, his name was Philip, to come and marry Herod. There's probably no proceedings. He just, she just left and married Herod. And John the Baptist said, this is not lawful, by the way. And John lost his head. So, but we're people who are called not to be like the world, as were the first, uh, as were the, the first church in, in Corinth. And Paul gives this instruction to them in verses 10 and 11. That saints are commanded not to separate. Verse 10 again. To the married, I give this command. This is a command. And it says, it goes on to say, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. And I use the word saints to denote those who are followers of Jesus Christ, those who have been sanctified by their faith in what he has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. A marriage where one believer is married to another believer. Whether this happened before, they got married before they came to Christ, they are Christians now. But Paul summarizes the teaching of Jesus himself when he says, not I, but the Lord. You see, the Pharisees would come to Jesus and test him. And in Matthew 19, they came to Jesus and said, Teacher, good teacher, is it permissible for a man to divorce a wife for any reason? You see, these people were affected by the theology of the day. Looking to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, talking about if a man finds anything indecent in his wife, that he can give her a certificate of divorce. Well, this is intended to be something very scandalous, a moral defect or something like that. But the, the Pharisees of the day had degraded it to just anything they could find. She burned my meal. I'm actually attracted to someone else. And this is where, you know, this is where things had landed. And Jesus rebukes them. And he comes back and says, in verse 4 of the same chapter. Haven't you read, he replied, that in, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And, and he said this, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And they come back and say, Well, then why did Moses command that a wife be given a certificate of divorce. And Jesus replies in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality 
and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus was focusing on the fact that in marriage, the two had become one flesh. A oneness had taken place both physically, spiritually, and emotionally. This was the holy sexuality he was talking about. And sexuality should not take place in any other arena except for a marriage between one man, one woman, in divorce. I mean, excuse me, in marriage. But divorce is due to hardness of heart, due to sin. Whether that was destructive or abusive behavior. One case that uh, Exodus 21.10 talks about is a man who marries another woman, and then from his his first wife he withholds food or, or clothing or even sex. That was considered abusive. And so the woman could, could be divorced from her husband because of that. Again, by the time we get to the first century, people are just looking for any excuse. And that shows the real hardness of heart. But this is not what God intended in the beginning. And to divorce a wife and to marry another amounted to adultery. The only exception Jesus made was that adultery had already taken place in the marriage. Except for sexual immorality. This is a serious teaching. What God has joined together, let no one separate. This union before God is not to be taken lightly because he is the one who joined the man and the woman together. But Paul is also realistic about what's going on in the situation in Corinth. He recognizes the reality. And perhaps there is a woman or a man who has divorced their spouse because of sin, because of pain, and they're separated and divorced from their spouse. You cannot unding the bell. But you can put yourself in a place for God to work redemptively and for them to be reconciliation. Verse 11, but if she does, talking about divorcing or separating from her, her husband, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. You see, in remaining unmarried, you put yourself in a place where reconciliation can take place. You see, if one gets divorced and then marries somebody else, well, there is no reconciliation in that marriage. You may say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> the things didn't turn out right, but there's no returning to that marriage. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4, in that same chapter I quoted earlier, talks about to return after divorcing and then marrying another and then divorcing. You can't go back to that marriage because God said that would be detestable in his eyes. It's also repeated in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. So we need to leave ourselves in a place for reconciliation. But here's the, here's the deeper illustration that marriage is intended to show. It's to, it's to reflect the redemptive relationship Christ has to his bride, the church. People that were alienated from God by their own sin and their own selfishness. Jesus came to bring reconciliation, to bring forgiveness, redemption, restoration to mankind at great cost 
to himself. And he betrothes himself to his bride forever. Marriage is to reflect that fidelity that Christ has toward his church. And it's a place where the heart of forgiveness, the heart of Christ, ought to reign. Forgiveness and grace and reconciliation and restoration can be extended because it's been extended to us in Jesus Christ. That's what marriage ought to display. Colossians 3, verses 12-14, which really talks about the relationship in the church, but should be very true in marriage, says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's what the church should look like. How much more in marriage? How much more in marriage? You know, as a pastor for a couple decades now, you kind of listen to things that other pastors will say. Now, I picked this up along the way, and I think some of the best marriage advice I've ever heard. Whenever I pre, uh, advise a, a couple in premarital counseling, this is what I say to them. Make it a habit of being reconciled to each other every day. Make it a habit of being reconciled to each other every day. Keep short accounts. Don't let it build up and keep a record of wrongs. Deal with those things every day. And start practicing words like this. I am sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And I forgive you. And you know what? That's hard sometimes, right? That's difficult. Because you've been hurt deeply oftentimes. You want to hold on to that. But we need to forgive as God has forgiven us. It takes humility sometimes. It takes humility to say, I'm wrong. And guys, we're probably the worst perpetrators in that area. One of the problems that men struggle with sometimes is pride. But here's my word to you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're being humble, you're in a place to receive God's grace. And that is a good thing. That's a good thing. To the divorced spouse, Paul's saying, remain unmarried. Give God a chance to do some work. Yeah. You may look at that person and go, there's no way. And you're right. In themselves, there is no way. But Jesus can transform. And it gives a testimony to a watching world who's asking the question, what? difference does Jesus make to begin with? Jesus can make all the difference. But I want, I want to say this about this whole passage. Today it's, I want to say it's more focused on staying married than it is about divorce. I'm, I'm not going to go down the road of every 
you know, conceivable reason for divorce or not. It's really about staying married. And so there's another group that Paul seeks to address. Those who are married, who are believers, but they are married to someone who is not a believer, someone who is not a follower of Jesus. And with, to this, there's a redemptive hope of remaining married to an unbeliever. Now listen to this, verses 12 through 14. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, saying I, I think I've got Jesus' trustworthy authority here. If any brother has a wife that is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So this concern makes sense. You see, these these new believers in Christ, remember this is the first century, they've just probably heard the gospel, maybe come to faith in the last ten years or so. The question is, should I remain married to an unbelieving spouse? And it makes light in the sense of some of the Old Testament teaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 7-3, it talks about not intermarrying with the pagan nations. This is the people of Israel not intermarrying with the pagan nations around them, lest they're led astray to idolatry. And then in Ezra, the people of God who've been in exile because of their disobedience to God. A lot of that was because of their intermarrying with, with the nations. They're commanded not to intermarry. And so they return to the promised land, and what happens? They intermarry with the nations around them. It's good to see that even God has children that don't listen to him, right? But Ezra comes and he rebukes them. And so as a response, they divorce their newly married spouses. Now I want to say God does not command this. God doesn't command this, but it's what, what how the people respond. And so, you know, the question is, well, should we do the same? The situation is different, though. Number one, the gospel has invaded the lives of these new believers. Come upon them even as they've been married before they were Christians. This is not an act of their disobedience. This is where the gospel finds them. Number two, the presence of a believer in marriage. Someone who God calls holy, a saint, their presence in marriage has somehow a sanctifying effect because of Christ in them. Again, in the Old Testament, so often if an item is unclean and it touches something that is holy or, or common, it, it defiles them. But in Christ, it's a change. Think about the Gospels even. When Jesus touched the leper, Jesus didn't become defiled. He was healed. and He became clean. This is somewhat the effect that's taking place here. Sanctification is not salvation. The faith of one cannot save another. But it is God honoring the marriage, that sexual union, as the two become one, as clean and set apart as unto him by the faith of the believing spouse, rather than in relation to 
a marriage before a, a pagan idol or even the unbelieving spouse just fulfilling themselves sexually. And any children that are born in that union enjoy the same favor and status before God. Think about the book of Acts and Timothy. Timothy is a young man and his mom Eunice is a Jewish woman who's come to faith in Jesus. His father is a, is a Greek man who, as far as we know, never put his faith in Jesus Christ. But because of the faith of mom, the hand of favor was on Timothy. And both the unbelieving spouse and the child and the children enjoyed the same practical benefits of being included in the community of faith. You know what? If you're a, a believer and your spouse is not a believer, we're still going to care for them. They're still going to experience the care of Jesus Christ. And your son or your daughter, we will consider them as one of our own. There's the blessings of being a part of the covenant community. But the ultimate, the ultimate sanctification is this, that they're being exposed to the good news of the gospel through the spouse and through the community of faith. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later here in verse 16. But that is the blessing of, of that an unbeliever receives from being married to a believer. But marriage is still a two-way street, right? It's still a two-way street. And even with an unbeliever, if the unbelieving spouse is unable to accept the newfound faith of the husband or wife, then there is a reason for release. Look at the first half of verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. For brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. You know, for some, the thought of having a rival love of anyone or anything else for allegiance or loyalty is unacceptable. And in most cases, that should probably be true. Except we're talking about Jesus here, who is our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, the ultimate lover of our souls. The one who rightfully says, everything is mine. And he has that claim. And Jesus would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Of course, you know Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not commanding anyone to hate their, their family members. But when it comes to choosing between me and your family member, I have to be number one. I have to be number one. Secondly, not everyone is thrilled about the newfound life and faith that their spouse has come to in Jesus Christ, right? It might be, hey, I liked it when we went bar hopping. I liked our sexual immorality and the liberal way we were behaving. Or the other behavior or attitudes that are contrary to Christ in his word. And the thought is, you've changed. You're not the same person I married. And if that doesn't change, then I'm out of here. And if that's the case, it may be painful and very difficult, especially for children, and I get that. But you need not chase after that person. 
you can let them go. In this case, the believing spouse is set free from the bonds of that marriage. And I believe that that means they are ultimately free to remarry. But only someone in the Lord, as verse 39 denotes. Now, the question could be, well, doesn't this contradict what Paul said earlier in verse 11? That someone should say, can divorce but not get married. No, I think there are some differences here. Number one, first of all, there is no direct command. I would think Paul would be clear about that, especially as number two, he says, the brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. They are set free. And number three, they are not bound to hold up a marriage where you're the only one who's acting in faith. That person cannot lift it themselves. As I said earlier, this passage is more about staying married than divorce. And Paul concludes with what I call a case for hope. A case for hope. So the last phrase on verse 15 says, God has called us to live in peace. And then in verse 16 it says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You know, oftentimes we translate this passage or understand this passage as an acquiescence, as letting the unbelieving spouse go without any drama, without trying to hold on to them. It's a permissive view, it's, excuse, I should say, a pessimistic view that you probably won't have any effect on that spouse for salvation anyway. I have to tell you, after studying this passage and looking into it, I'm pretty much convinced it's just the opposite. It's not pessimistic. It's very hopeful. And there's a reason for hope. And that is you can have an impact for salvation. And the order of thoughts may throw us off, but, but let me just work this through before you, okay? First of all, the nature of Christ's kingdom is peace and reconciliation. He says again in verse 15, God has called us to live in peace. It's not just a, can we all just get along? Although there's a place for that in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everybody. But it's a calling to be part of the peace process of calling someone into peace with God. Even Jesus himself says, blessed are the peacemakers in his Sermon on the Mount. But they will be called sons of God. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, it's talking about Jesus is indeed our peace, talking about our reconciliation to him. And that phrase is not enough to make this case. But here's what happens in the next verse, in verse 16. Oftentimes we read this as pessimistic. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? No, it probably needs to be read like this. How do you know, wife? You may save your husband. How do you know, husband? You may save your wife. And this is not just evangelical optimism. I'm not trying to turn this on its ear, okay? Because there are four passages in the Old Testament where the same Greek construction is used, and it's always in a, looking for a positive outlook. In chapter, chapter 2 of, of, excuse me, it's 2 Samuel, not chapter 2, um, let me get where I'm at. Okay, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. He's talking to, David is talking to 
his servants after they're going, well, what's going on? And, and after he fasted, he says, and he has a son who God has said, I'm going to put this son to death because of your sin. And David said, I fasted because I said, who knows, maybe God will let the child live. And Esther, Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, maybe God has raised you up for such a time as this. In Joel chapter 2, verse 14, talking about fasting and mourning before the Lord for their sin, says, who knows, maybe God will leave a blessing. And in Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, as Jonah has been parading around Nineveh, saying, in 40 days God will overthrow Nineveh. The king commands fasting and praying, says, who knows, maybe God will relent from bringing wrath. Every time looking for a positive outcome rather than a negative one. This is the redemptive heart here that Paul is showing. And the redemptive heart is found in another apostle. This is what Peter says about a relationship like this. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won. Won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The hope is that God is going to do something redemptive in the life of the unbelieving spouse as they look at the obedient and peaceful behavior, the redemptive behavior of their spouse. Again, I contend that this passage is more about staying married than it is about divorce. And folks, I know that some of you have experienced the hurt of divorce firsthand. And I'm not here to bring condemnation, not here to bring shame. There are biblical grounds for divorce, and I'm not, you know, there are harmful situations that people just need to get out of. And, you know, if you divorced or experienced divorce for own selfish reasons, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. And our God is one of salvation. I just want to encourage you that God wants to take you where you're at right now and help you take the next step of faith and obedience, whether it's in your present marriage or in your singleness or in any other area of life. Our God is one of redemption. But for the couple that is a believing couple and they're in conflict, I want to encourage you Start learning to practice the art of being reconciled to one another every day. That grace and forgiveness of Christ might flow out amongst two sinners. And if you need help, the church is here to help. The church is here to help. Sometimes you need somebody to help mitigate and help you navigate through those things. Or you are divorced, but you haven't remarried. Then Stand married and give God a chance to work. As long as you both remain single, there's a possibility of reconciliation. And for the believer who's married to the unbeliever, I want to say you are God, you are an agent of God's sanctification and peace. It may be difficult and challenging because you're going in different directions. And I get that. I understand that. That's a hard place to be. And I'll be praying for you. But God they have a desire to use you as a tool in bringing your spouse to faith. 
And by the way, this is not permission to go ahead and marry an unbeliever or enter into missionary dating. God says, don't be an equally yoked with an unbeliever. That's for our good. But if that's where your life finds you, you can have hope that God indeed does want to use you in the life of your unbelieving spouse as you submit to Him. There are no guarantees, there's no promise, but there is hope that God wants to work in you and through you. The message of this passage is that God wants to be honored in the reconciliation of our marriages. He wants to show forth His own reconciliation to a sinful world. That's all we have today. Let me pray, and then I'll ask the worship team to come and close us. Again, Lord, I've, I've done my best to try and be faithful in this word. And I know I don't know every circumstance, every heart. And when there's hurt, Lord, would you bring healing? When there's hopelessness, would you bring hope and faith and confidence? Where there's guilt, would you bring forgiveness and resolution? And where reconciliation needs to take place, I pray that you would bring reconciliation. But we're so grateful that you're a God who came to seek and save the lost. Lord, we were strangers wandering from you, and you came for us. You've made us your children. You've made us your bride. You've reconciled us to yourself. Lord, would you do that kind of work in our marriages to reflect what you want to do in the hearts and lives of many. And that you would use our marriages even somehow to draw men and women to yourself. That they might be reconciled to you and be your bride as well. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for life in you. I thank you for the hope that we have in you. And I thank you that what is impossible for men is not impossible for you. Would you give us grace to move forward in that faith, in that hope? Lord Jesus, this is the name I pray these things. Amen.